Well, if you'll take your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis, chapter 12. <clears throat> you have to excuse my scratchy voice this morning, that sickness, that's the allergies is floating around my house, and it hit me in the middle of the night. So here I am, scratchy throat and all. Um, this will be our last, uh, our last message in this series about the story of God as we're kind of introducing God's story in the, in, the, in the scriptures. So if you've been following along with our reading plan through the year of biblical literacy and using the Read Scripture app, We'll be finishing the book of Numbers, I think, Monday or Tuesday, I think, um, and moving on to the book of Deuteronomy. And so we've gotten through a lot of the most challenging parts of our, our reading. And so you've made it so far. I wish I could give you a gold star, and, uh, and, but I'll just give you a word of encouragement. So we're about to get into the more interesting things. Um, if you made it through Numbers, you can, I'm going to tell you, if you can make it through Numbers, you can make it through any of it, right? Um, now, once we get to the minor prophets towards the end of the Old Testament, you might need some encouragement all over again, but that's still a ways down the road. So as we've been going through our reading, our daily reading, our Sunday school time focuses on taking us through those scriptures again once a week. But then my preaching time here has been just going through some of the high notes. And so today we're in Genesis 12 and talking about the story of God and how God continued to unfold his story um, to bring about redemption for the world. So when you really think about it, the Bible and the story of scripture is not all that complicated. Right now, I know when I say that you might not agree with me on that because you might think, well, I, I read it and it's a little bit complicated. Right. Like there are some stories in there that don't make any sense to me. Like, for example, we just read through numbers and we get to chapter 22 and 23 and you see the story of a talking donkey. And you might think that's a little weird. Right. Like, where does that fit into the story of God and why is that even a part of the scriptures? But when you really think about what the whole what the Bible as a whole really is trying to communicate, you understand that it's really a lot simpler than you think, right? So if you could boil it down to one brief little summary, what I would say is this. The whole story of Scripture is a story about God on a mission to bring redemption back to the world, right? Or to bring redemption to the world, to bring the world back to its original design, right? So like every page in Scripture, every story that we read, some of those stories might be difficult to read or understand, for some of them, it takes a little bit extra digging and some research and some talking about things to try to figure out what God is trying to communicate there. But, but all together, collectively, the story is not that complicated. Every single story goes back to this mission that God is on to bring redemption to the world. Okay? And so, to put it another way, a, a good God made a good and perfect world, and he made humanity to enjoy it, right? And so he put Adam and Eve, put man and woman in this beautiful garden because of his desire for them to enjoy this good world that he created for them. And that was God's original design and original purpose for mankind, right? Here's a good world. It's good. It's perfect. It meets all of your needs. You have everything that you possibly want. You have fellowship with me, right? So like now I want you to just enjoy it forever and ever and nothing will ever mess this up except for sin, right? And so then as the story changes in chapter three of Genesis, you see sin entering the world because of man's choices, because they chose to rebel against God and do things their own way. And so from chapter three on forward, everything else goes back to that moment right there. That was the pivotal moment that everything else is about God bringing everything back to that original picture. And so last week we went to the book of Revelation. And we look at Revelation 21 and we look at this picture of God recreating heaven and earth and bringing heaven back down to earth and creating this paradise for man and woman to live in once again. Right. And so when you read that description, you see this picture 
of a garden and a river and a tree of life and the presence of God. And it seems really familiar because it's God bringing us back to that garden of, of that paradise, that garden of Eden in the very beginning. And so between Genesis 3 and Revelation 21, everything in between that is God on a mission to bring everything back to the way that it was supposed to be, right? You and I are still part of that mission today. So when we get to uh, later parts of the book of Genesis, we begin to see that God takes steps to, to, to make this plan of salvation or plan of redemption a reality, right? Because it can't just be a theory. It can't just be a wish or a plan, God has to do something to intervene within humanity to make this plan more real, right? So go with me real quick back to the book of Genesis chapter 3 before we get to chapter 12. And let's lay the, the, the foundation once again. In Genesis chapter 3, there's only one verse I want us to look at in verse 15. This is God talking to the serpent who has tempted Eve and Adam. And, and because of his temptation, they gave in. They ate the fruit that was forbidden. And so because of that, they're experiencing the consequences of their sin, and God pronounces a curse upon the serpent. And so in verse 15, he says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So when you look at that, you understand this in a couple of different ways. Number one, you understand that, that the serpent is being told, you will not have victory forever. Right. There's going to be this ongoing strife between you and between humanity. And you may try for generations to torment them and to spread your evil reach all throughout their nature and all throughout their world. That's going to happen. I understand that there's going to be strife between you and their and her offspring. Here's what he says in the end of that verse. He shall bruise your head or your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. And so God is already in chapter three, giving us an indication of a future plan to make things right again. Right. And so a few weeks ago, we talked about the snake crusher right afterwards. Blue came up to me and he said that would be an awesome T-shirt. And so I'm still waiting on him to make that that snake crusher T-shirt. Right. Uh, That's where you go. So so the snake crusher, we talked about how God is saying one day someone is going to come talking to the serpent who will crush your head. Right. You're going you're gonna to bruise his heel, but he's going to bruise your head. Now, now, in a fight between those two entities, which one do you think deals the, the most severe blow? The heel blow or the head one? It's the head, right? And so, so the serpent is becoming aware of the fact that one day someone is going to come, sent by God, to crush his head and put an end to his influence, right? And so we said that as, as the generations progressed, as the world developed, that the, that the serpent's darkness and his evil continued to spread, right? So from Genesis 3 onwards, Genesis 12, where we're going to be today, you see lots of different things taking place. You see, not only Adam and Eve got, you know, they were removed from the garden. They had two sons, Cain and Abel. That didn't end, out, end up well, right? Cain committed the first murder. You see the devil's reach beginning to spread, where murder becomes a part of the picture. You see violence and bloodshed and deception and pride and arrogance. You get to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9 and you see God saying, you know what? The wickedness of man is like, it's rampant and it's terrible. So we're going to wipe it all out and we're going to start over. And so he sends this flood. And yet he chooses one family because they were righteous. Noah was righteous, right? And he says, because Noah walked with God, we're going to start over with him. And he is going to be this initiator of this new form of creation, right? And so the flood comes, it wipes everything out. And then Noah gets elected 
to, to start the, the process over again. But as you read the scripture, you realize it doesn't take very long for Noah to once again succumb to the evil influence of the serpent, right? Because there's this weird, random story. Uh, Jude has been reading through his, his adventure Bible at home. And I'll walk in sometimes and he's just sitting on the couch reading his stories. And I, I always wait because I'm, I just wait for those moments when he's like, wait a second, Dad. Explain this story to me, right? And so I have to tell him, listen, there are some weird things in there, right? And one of those came up the other day when he said, now tell me about this guy Noah. And what's talking about where he's naked and his sons are covering him up. And there's like something about shame, like make sense of that for me. And I told him, I don't know. All right. It's weird. And it doesn't make any sense. Right. But you just have to go with it. All right. Because you see that Noah gets drunk and then he's naked. And then there's something about his sons and they try to cover him. And then there's a shame. And then Noah's guilty of, and it's just this weird story. Right. But what it goes to show you is that it didn't take long for, for even when God is recreating things with the world and with humanity, for Noah to succumb to that evil, sinful nature once again, right? And so then shortly after that, you see people gathering themselves together and they're saying, you know what? We're pretty mighty and we think we're pretty special. We should build this massive tower that's going to reach heaven and that'll prove that we don't need anyone to rule over us. We can rule ourselves, right? And so you see the Tower of Babel and God says, nope, that's not going to happen. And so he destroys it and he scatters them all around the world and he gives them different languages and he, he institutes this, this confusion among them where they can't communicate anymore. And so you see the serpent's influence spreading throughout the generations, spreading throughout humanity, spreading all over the world, right? And yet repeatedly we're drawn back to that promise in Genesis 3.15 where God said, one day a snake crusher will come and he will destroy the works of the serpent. He will destroy the works of the devil. And so that's been this long-held, long-known plan of God, right? And finally, when we get to Genesis chapter 12, we see God beginning to implement this plan in a physical, tangible fashion. Because up until this point, it's been, in a, in a way, it's been a theory. It's been, it's been a thought, right? It's been a, it's been a prediction or it's been a, an expectation. But it hasn't been something actually concrete until this moment right here. And it all comes into play with this man named Abram, who God chooses out of all the people in the world to be the man through whom his descendants will bring about this salvation or this redemption that God wants to bring into the world, right? And so from Genesis 3 all the way to Genesis 12, here's what we have. If you were to summarize those chapters, those nine chapters, here's what you'd see. It's basically God laying out this indictment against humanity, and giving you all the evidence that proves the depravity of mankind, right? So Genesis 3 all the way to 12 shows you how depraved and how sinful mankind is. And when we get to chapter 12, it's God saying, okay, so you get the picture. Man is like utterly sinful and depraved and they need redemption. So chapter 12 says, so here's how I'm going to make that happen, right? So now here's me enacting my plan to bring salvation and redemption into the world, right? So look at chapter 12 with me, and let's look at verse 1. Now, the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran, 
And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built there an altar to the Lord, who had appeared to him. From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going toward the Negev. So I think a lot of us are probably familiar with this story, right? But I want to share something with you that I'm that I kind of get excited about because I'm a Bible nerd, but I learned something interesting about this story um, that hopefully I can make clear to you today. There's a traditional, typical way that we normally understand this story, right? But I think that if we just jump into chapter 12 and we kind of see it for what it is, we miss an important detail that I want to try to point out to you about Abram and about his background. But here's what I want us to understand today. As God is implementing and, and, and initiating this plan to use human beings to bring about his plan of redemption one day, he doesn't choose a man who is just like the most righteous person in the world, all right? He doesn't choose a man who has proven himself to be the most faithful person in the world or the most faith-filled person in the world, right? I know that we, we go on to talk about Abram and how he was justified by his faith, but because of his faith in God, he was made righteous, and all that, those things are true. But, but the background of Abram was not this background that was built on faith in God and immediate obedience to God, all right? So, so God is here starting his plan to bring about redemption to the world by choosing a man who did not deserve to be chosen any more than anyone else did in the world, okay? And so what this shows us, number one, is that God is a God of grace and that God wants to involve people in his plan of redemption for the world, but he doesn't choose people who prove themselves to be perfect, right? So everything that God does is based on his grace and his love for humanity. God doesn't need us to be perfect first. He comes into our lives after we've responded to his call and he chooses to involve us. And by that grace, he changes us over time, right? But we don't start out perfect. And that's how we get to be involved in God's kingdom work. And the same was true for Abram. So in chapter 12, what we usually talk about and what we usually say about Abram is, is we say something like this. Look at how much faith Abram had that he's here hanging out with his family in, in Haran, and he doesn't even know God, right? He's, he's not a God worshiper. He doesn't know Jehovah. And yet God speaks to him and communicates to him and gives him an invitation to get up and move his family to the land of Canaan, right? And so the way we normally present it is we say, look how faithful he was, right? So like this, this random, in his mind, this random God speaks to him, and Abram responds with obedience and says, I don't really know who you are or where I'm going, but I'm going to get up and I'm going to go and I'm going to follow you blindly because that's faith, right? And that God takes him to the land of Canaan and makes his promise to him. But when we read it, only looking at chapter 12, we miss something really important. Okay? So to help us to clarify, we need to go to the book of Acts. So go to the book of Acts and turn to chapter 7 with me. In Acts 7, we meet a man by the name of Stephen. Stephen was a disciple of Jesus um, in the early days of the church. He was uh, called upon to be a deacon in the early church there in Jerusalem. 
And Stephen was a man who was filled with the, with the Spirit of God, was full of passion, and would often preach and teach the Word of God to anyone who would listen to try to convert people to following Jesus. And there was a certain point in time when Stephen was seized and, 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 and ultimately killed. But before he was put to death, he gave his last going out speech right there in the street. He starts preaching the gospel from beginning to end, the story of God and the story of God's plan of redemption. And if you look at Acts chapter 7, you see there in verse number 1, the high priest said, are these things so? And Stephen said, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran. And said to him, go out from your land and from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Then he went out from the land of the Chaldeans and lived in Haran. And after his father died, God removed him from there into this land in which you are now living. Okay, so something that we really need to see here is that when does, it, when does Stephen say that Abram first received the call from God to go into what would be called the promised land? When he was in Mesopotamia, right? When he was in Haran. All right, so now we go back to Genesis, and now we look at chapter 11. Just a few verses up above where we were. These are, in verse 27, these are the generations of Terah. Terah fathered Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran fathered Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his kindred in Ur of the Chaldeans. And Abram and Nahor took wives. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah, and Iscah. Now Sarai was barren. She had no child. Verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went forth together from Ur of the Chaldeans to go into the land of Canaan. But when they came to Haran, they settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. All right, so let me see if I can put all this together for you guys, all right? Stephen says in Acts 7 that, that Abram first received the call of God when he was still in, uh, in the land of Mesopotamia, right? Before he went to Haran, before he got to the land of Canaan. Back in chapter 7, uh, it says there in verse 2 that Abram, when he was in Mesopotamia, before he lived in Haran, heard from God and God told him, I want you to get up and go to this land that I'm going to show you, that I'm going to promise to your descendants, this land of inheritance, right? So in Acts 11, what we see is that there was a time in the background of Abram where he and his father and his, uh, his uncle and his cousin and, and his wife and all the family lived in the land of the Chaldeans in Mesopotamia, right? And that there was a point in time, verse 31, when Terah took Abram, his son, when Terah said, come on, Abram, my son, grab your wife, grab Lot, let's get up and let's move towards the land of Canaan, okay? So here's what we're, we're seeing here. That back when Abram was living in Mesopotamia, in Ur, the land of the Chaldeans, with his father and his wife and his uncle and all these people, at that point in time, and Genesis doesn't really tell us this, but at that point in time, according to Stephen, Abram received his first call from God to get up and go to the land of Canaan. But we don't see Abram in chapter 11 taking the initiative to go and take himself to the land of Canaan, do we? In verse 31, who does it say took the initiative to take Abram to Canaan? His father, right? Not Abram. So what the story tells us, number one, is that Abram heard the call of God back in Ur of the Chaldeans. And God says, get up, take your family, go to the land of Canaan. I have a promise there for you. 
And Abram didn't respond. He refused. He disobeyed. Instead, he went and told his dad. And it was a point in time when his dad said, you know what? I think maybe we should kind of all go together and explore this thing that God might be calling you to do. So what this shows us about Abram is that he's very passive, right? He's not faithful. He's faithless. He's passive. He takes no initiative to follow God's call on his life, right? So think about God calling a person to go and do a work of the ministry or go and go to a new place or God putting a calling on your life and saying, here's this work or this task that I want you to do. And instead of doing it, you just sit there and you don't take action, right? And you're passive instead of active. You don't, you don't get up and you don't follow God. It kind of reminds me of later, we'll talk about Jonah. How Jonah was not just passive, he was completely disobedient and rebellious, right? And how, how God said, Jonah, I want you to get up. I want you to go to the land of Nineveh and preach to them about my mercy and my, and my willingness to forgive them. And instead of not being active, Jonah says, you know what? I'm not going to do that. Not only am I not going to do that, I'm going to go the opposite direction and run away from you, right? But Abram didn't even have the energy or the initiative to go in a different direction. He just didn't go anywhere. Okay, so he gets this call from God and instead of doing anything with it, he just sits there and he's very passive. He's lazy. He has no faith. He takes no initiative. He leaves it up to his father to be the one to push him in that direction. So number one, here's what that, te- here's what that tells me about us sometimes. I think that we, as God's people, can be passive sometimes, right? That's a nice way of saying lazy, don't you think? So we are passive sometimes when we know that God is calling us to something, when we know that maybe God is calling us to commit more of ourselves to something, when we know that God is putting a ministry in front of us or he's stirring up our heart with a passion, and instead of acting on it, we just sit around and do nothing with it, right? Mark Cuban, who is my favorite on Shark Tank, by the way, will talk about sometimes the analysis paralysis. Have you ever heard of this? This is a business term, I think, where he says that sometimes when you're faced with a decision, you know what the right thing to do is, but you sit back and you analyze. And you analyze and you deliberate and you think about all the different aspects of it. And you, you overthink it so much that eventually you just don't do anything. And you make no decision, right? I think that's true of our Christian life sometimes. Now, sometimes we know that God is calling us to something, and yet we don't do it. Maybe we, we overanalyze, and we just deliberate, and we think, and we end up with paralysis, right? We think of a million reasons why maybe that won't work, or why we can't do that, or, or we go back to, you know, well, I just don't have time to commit that to God, or I don't have the energy, or, or you know, I don't really know that I'm hearing God the right way, or, or I'm, I'm too scared. We give into our fears, right? Or I don't have the money for that. Or, or I don't have the skill set for that, right? Or we think about all the different things that we feel like we have to figure out before we can follow God. Like, I have to have the whole thing mapped out before I follow God. That's not faith, is it? And let me tell you, I put myself on that boat. That's, part, that's something that we talk about a lot, is that even as a preacher who should be like walking in faith, right? I have a hard time. I don't know what's happened to me over the years, but I feel like I have to have the exact, definite, like well-thought-out plan and before I can move forward and do anything different. And yet God says, I just want you to get up and go, right? If I've given you a calling, don't be passive. Don't overanalyze. Don't allow yourself to be paralyzed by, by fear or by trying to figure out all the different things that I have to work out first. Just get up and just walk by faith and just follow my calling. Right? So Abram didn't do that. He ignored God's calling and left it up to his dad. 
And here's what I want to say to you. I feel like God is saying to us, you can't leave it up to your mom, your dad, your brother, your friend, or your neighbor to do the work that God is calling you to do, right? God has a work for each and every one of us to do. It may not be to, you know, get up and teach the Bible or preach a sermon or, or go move to Africa and start a church, right? It might just be to increase your commitment in a certain area or to, to, to be more of an evangelist in your daily life or to go out and be more of a, an active blessing in your community or your neighborhood, right? I mean, it, the list can go on. You can't leave it up to someone else to do it. God says, if I've called you to do it, I want you to get up and do it. And so Abram was, was very passive. We get to chapter 12, though. The end of chapter 11, it says that, that they, they start going towards Canaan and they stop in Haran and they settle there. And that's at that point that Terah, his father, dies at the age of 205 years old, right? And so this is possibly why Abram settled there in Haran. Maybe they were on the way to Canaan and Terah got sick, maybe, or couldn't continue on his journey because he was, he was older in age. And so they stop in Haran and they settle and it's there where Terah, his father, passes away. But we see even then, Abram didn't get up and continue on the journey. He just stayed there, right? And sometimes I think that's true for us too. We get comfortable, right? When God wants us to keep moving, keep growing, keep building, we just kind of remain stagnant. And we say, wherever we ended up, that's good enough for us. We're going to stay where we're comfortable. In chapter 12 then, we see this being the second time that God speaks to Abram and gives him a calling. Chapter 12, verse 1, now the Lord says to Abram, go from your country. So when you read it this way, I can imagine God in this moment of exasperation, like, Abram, where are you? Like, get up and go, right? Like, you've got to go somewhere. You've got to do, do the thing that I've called you to do. So he says there in verse 1, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your nation great. So God gives him this incredible promise. And God says, listen, here's what's waiting for you. When you step out in faith and you walk in obedience and you go to the place where I want you, there's a blessing waiting for you. And that's true for us too. That's the invitation that God gives us. He says, when you, when you walk with me and go where I want you to go and do what I want you to do, there is a blessing waiting for you, right? Now, Abram's blessing was a lot more profound um, and bigger than our blessing might be, in a way, because Abram's blessing had to do with him being used as the kind of the, the beginning stages of God bringing about the Redeemer to the world, Jesus Christ, right? So Abram finally gets up, and he goes, and he gets to the land of Canaan. And it says there in verse uh, 6, um, or verse 5, they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land of the place at, at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to him again and says, to your offspring, I'm going to give this land. So as the rest of the story goes on from this point onward through the rest of Scripture, you see God beginning to work with this line, this lineage of people, right? That, that for whatever reason, even though he didn't deserve it, God chooses to use Abram to be the, the beginning of this new generation, this new offspring, this new lineage of people who would one day produce Jesus. And so here's what this tells me. Is if you put all the pieces together, understanding that Abram is this passive, um, non-initiative taking uh, person who's not filled with faith and obedience right away, who needs some prodding to get up and go, right? And yet, God still chooses him 
to enact this covenant with him, right? And that's really what it comes down to, is that the story of God really culminates and really begins with this covenant. That's what God's all about, right? That God takes this sinful, passive, disobedient, faithless person, and he says, you don't deserve it, but by my grace, I'm going to allow you to be the person with whom I make this covenant agreement. Now, we don't really talk about covenant a whole lot, do we? We don't use that uh, concept in our modern English uh, vocabulary very much, right? When you think of covenant, the only thing I think about is, is marriage, right? That we, we use the word covenant in wedding ceremonies. And so we say these people are here joining together to make a covenant between themselves and God, right? And so in that way, think of what a covenant is. A covenant is two people who are agreeing to love each other, be faithful to each other, and support each other no matter what, right? And so when you make your marriage vows, when you make your covenant, you say things like, um, for better or for worse, for sick or for poor, for richer, for what, for what am I saying here? Richer for poor, sickness and health, not sick and poor, although the two can go hand in hand, right? And so you say, till death do us part, I'm gonna make my commitment to you, right? And, and so when you get married, it's supposed to be this like lifelong commitment, this covenant with each other that you're entering into, not just with each other. It isn't just like a, a contract, right? But it's a, it's a commitment before God and with God that you're going to honor this commitment to your spouse for the rest of your life, right? So that's in a perfect world what it should be like, right? That's the idea of covenant, but a million times greater than that with God. And the thing about covenant with God is that it's not conditional. So God calls Abram into this covenant and says, here's how I'm going to bring about salvation and redemption of the world. I'm going to use you to start this covenant or to have this covenant with, this agreement with, this, this commitment to your, uh, your family and your offspring. And you're always going to be my people, right? God, for the rest of the generations of Israel, as, as we see the story develop and unfold in the later books, is always going to stay faithful to Abraham and his descendants, even when they are not faithful to him, right? So it was never based on how good they were or how well, how, how, how well they behaved and how much they deserved God's love. It was always based on God's grace. And the same is true for us today, right? So God would work through this covenant with Abraham, this promise to him to always be their God, that he would one day bring about Jesus through his descendants, who would be the snake crusher that he promised in Genesis chapter 3. Today, God invites you and I into a covenant with himself through Jesus. So whenever we had the Lord's Supper, we talked about how Jesus says, this is the new covenant in my blood, right? Because of the blood of Christ, you and I get to partake of the covenant, a covenant with God. And it's this lifelong, eternal covenant. It's not based on how great we are or how faithful we are, how much faith we have. It's all about God's grace. And yet God says, because of my grace, I want to change you. So come and be a part of my family and come and be a part of my covenant. Come and receive my never ending unconditional love. But also under that covenant, let me work on you and develop you and bring redemption, more redemption and salvation and renewal into your life, right? And it all goes back to God's grace. God is a covenant-making God. That's where the story of salvation starts and it's where it ends, right? So he made a covenant with Abraham 
and He makes a covenant with us. And one day the culmination of that will be that all of us get to partake of His eternal kingdom forever. We get to live in His presence for eternity. Right? And so how do we respond to that? Just to wrap it up real quick today. Number one is just to be grateful for God's grace. To understand that God didn't choose us to be a part of his family because we deserved it, right? That even though sometimes we're passive and sometimes we don't have faith and sometimes we rebel against him and God knew that, he still chose us to be a part of his family. That's a great gift of grace that we should always be grateful for. But number two, the last point in response to that covenant that God has made with us is just to realize that, you know what? We are God's people. We are not just wandering through this world. We belong to God. We have God's love and grace all over us, right? And that should be producing a change and a transformation in us. So how can you and I commit ourselves today to walk more faithfully in the covenant that God has called us into? How can we continue to promote and tell the story of God through our lives and our commitment to Jesus? It's not conditional, right? God says, even if you fail me, I won't fail you. But why wouldn't we want to walk more faithfully with Jesus in this world? So that's my challenge for you today. Let me close this in prayer, and we'll close with one final song. Father, I thank you for allowing